Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. My guest today is Denny, also known as Timecode. She's a real pioneer in the art of incorporating synthesizers and synthesized voices into her music. Starting off in the 70s in more traditional bands, playing bass and singing, she eventually started to include these technologies and created her own original music. A true pioneer, she was one of the first people to start using robots in a band incorporating singing machines, voice simulations, and human voice blends into music. Sit back and enjoy this special episode of Music Live Radio featuring Denny. My name is Denny. I'm a female record producer based in the UK, and my solo project is called Time Code. I grew up in a seaside holiday town called Blackpool in the north of England. It has a beach, sand hills and a place known as the Golden Mile, which is full of entertainment, including the world famous Blackpool Pleasure Beach. There was always something to do and see and explore. Blackpool is packed with venues and clubs, both large and small, and it's a bit like Las Vegas, but on a much smaller scale, and not as affluent and without the climate. Early on, I was influenced by pop, rock, punk and soul music. My parents were rebels in their day, listening to Elvis and Bill Haley and the Comets, and the radio was always on at home. My dad liked the Beatles, whilst my mum preferred the Rolling Stones, and this was always a bone of contention. My parents were only young themselves when they married and had me, my mum being just 17, and so they were very modern and up-to-date. I remember being allowed to stay up late to watch music shows on TV, which were broadcast way beyond my bedtime. Later on, I used to listen to the pirate radio stations under the bedclothes, and that was where you heard music which didn't get played by the BBC, and this certainly broadened my outlook. Bearing in mind the fact my parents were so young, they most of the time had no money, and what money they did have they spent on a massive beast called a radiogram and a black and white television. So to a large extent, my early influences were governed by what I heard on the radio and not my parents' vast record collection, but I was lucky enough in that they took me to see the Beatles live. I was always interested in music and show me a kid that isn't, and was in the choir at school, but actual music lessons, in particular playing the damn recorder, nearly killed off any aspirations. As a teenager, I went to see as many live bands as I could, and I recall putting makeup on in a telephone box to get into the gigs and taking it off again before I went home. This was because by that time, my father decided that academia was more important than music, and music was something that you grow out of and is only a passing phase, not a proper job syndrome. My father was not supportive of any musical ambitions right up until his death, but my mother remained so. I retreated into music during my parents' divorce, and music then became my refuge, and I stayed there, psychosocial. I received a Burns Flight bass guitar from Mark Bolan of T Rex in 1975. And I won this in a competition run by the now defunct Top of the Pops magazine. 
You had to come up with a reason why you deserved the bass, and I wrote that at that time I was playing a copy of a Fender Precision bass, which cost me all of £15, and that it was, in essence, a plank of wood. Mark Bolan was given the guitar version of the Burns Flight, and he gave me the bass at a presentation award ceremony held in London. We had a 12-bar blues jam using Vox AC30s, and I'd met Bolan before on previous occasions, three in all, and he remembered me. At the presentation award, I first became aware of how the music business stage manages absolutely everything. For example, at least 30 other competition entrants were at the ceremony, and the pretense was that everyone would write their names on a piece of paper, which Mark would randomly draw out of a hat, and they would be the winner. Meanwhile, the Burns Flight bass nestled in its velvet-lined case with a plaque already inscribed with my name on. As it turned out, both guitars were a pile of shit and had no power whatsoever, although they looked fantastic. Mark Boland threw his offstage on live TV and I played mine for about a year, but ultimately spent my student grant on buying a series of decent basses, a Fender Precision, a Dan Armstrong plexiglass and a Rickenbacker. My very first proper band was called Wildfire and I was going out with a boyfriend who'd played bass and consequently taught me to play. His name was Pete Francis and these days he lives in Virginia in the USA. He moved on to guitar and initially did lead vocals, but I wrote my first song in Wildfire and began doing vocals besides playing bass. It was in this band, a three-piece, with various drummers who came and went and whose names escaped me, where I served my apprenticeship. We gigged and gigged and trolled up and down motorways, sleeping in a clapped-out van, often on top of Marshall stacks, freezing and starving to death. But I learned the ropes in wildfire, how to set up PAs and balance them, carry equipment, get gigs, and although it was a slog, I loved it. You'll hear a cover version of Tell Him by Wildfire, taken from cassette, I hasten to add. Francis moved back onto bass and joined another band and I was gutted, but I then formed a band called Mistress. My band Mistress was a special case. Wildfire changed its name to Mistress because of the growing attention on me and so I took the name with me when I formed the first all-girl version of the band. I advertised locally and in the national music press for a female drummer, a guitarist and keyboards player. Auditions were a nightmare and a joke at times, and despite putting the obligatory no time wasters in the ad, I might well just have put time wasters welcome. Ultimately though, the first gigging version of Mistress featured a girl called Donna on keyboards, Joan on guitar, 
and sass on drums, with myself on bass and vocals. Donna was the girly member. Joan did an impression of shit going down the lavatory, which just about set the tone of things. And Sass was from Liverpool and worked in a factory. And you really don't want to hear about what went on in the factory. This version of Mistress gigged regularly in Liverpool. And we wrote our own songs, which were basically four to the floor, all of them. But we were tight and fun and exciting. My lasting memories of this version of Mistress are that we shared a tiny run-down flat in Walthamstow in the east end of London, which was a dump, and we moved to Battersea and had a great view of Battersea Power Station, as on the Pink Floyd cover with the flying pig. We had a pressure cooker into which the remains of any and all food went, and we just reheated it constantly. A thick grey sludge sustained us for weeks at a time. I don't think we ever cleaned it, just topped it up. The music press reviewed our third only gig and we weren't tight then, but bless, they did say we would improve. All those girls left to either get married and or didn't have the staying power. The next memorable version of Mistress featured a girl called Debbie on guitar, a male friend called Chris who dressed in drag, convincingly I hasten to add, who passed himself off as herself and was the drummer, and a girl from Jamaica on lead vocals who couldn't sing in English very well, and that version was very tenuous. Getting the male drummer out of any venue before fans rumbled the fact that she was a he was fraught at every gig. False tits and everything. The very best version of Mistress featured a girl called Lynn on drums who was just 16 and so very enthusiastic and her drumming rapidly improved and an American girl called Terry from New York. I met Terry in a bar when she was celebrating her birthday, which turned out to be the same date as mine. This version of Mistress toured with Madness. After the tour, when Mistress returned to the UK, Terry got deported because her work permit had expired. After that, various London management companies tried to manufacture a version of Mistress and put me together with a drummer called Kitty, a guitarist called Deirdre and a vocalist called Sue. It didn't work as there was no chemistry in the band. Kitty went on later, I believe, to tour with the Foundations. Deirdre went on to present the TV show Rock School and Sue had a modelling career. By this time, I'd had enough of an all-girl band being a novelty and kept the name Mistress, but brought in male members, notably Pharaoh on drums and a guitarist called Dean. At least more than 45 members passed through the ranks of Mistress, and I can't recall the names of any others apart from the people I've mentioned. My biggest major accomplishments with Mistress were just getting a girl band off the ground and sustaining it, getting gigs and press and just carrying on. I don't have any songs by the all-girl versions of Mistress, but recording did take place. Somewhere out there is a cover version of Wild Thing, a song called Stay With Me Tonight and Ultimatum. No doubt in these days of the internet, someone will trawl and find them. Let me know if you do. I'd come across a character called the Pharaoh and also a second-hand drum machine. Pharaoh was a drummer and had a dog called Horrible, Ori for short, and it was a mad, scruffy mongrel. 
Both of them lived in a camper van, which got impounded by the police as it was a wreck, and so I ended up sharing a place with both of them for years. Pharaoh was to be in all my other bands in various roles and was a unique, wild person. One day, having been conned into taking Ori for a walk, the complete song, Boom Boom, which you'll hear, came to me. Lyrics, rhythm, arrangement and everything, very quickly. It didn't fit into any of my past musical styles, but I decided that didn't matter and recorded the song as I'd heard it in my head. Within weeks, it got picked up by Logo Records, was distributed by a major label and got radio play. So things were evolving already. When the time came to do a second single, I was mortified by the record company's suggestion that I do a promo video dressed as a baby in a playpen. Needless to say, the Lulu Boys and their record company parted. Pharaoh, meanwhile, went to Berlin for a few years and then came back to the UK. We were still friends and I thought things were good with him. But he then committed suicide and I was trashed. I'd only seen him the week before Christmas and he told me he was going to stay with his family and was making arrangements for someone to look after Ori while he was away. On the 19th of December, he filled his car with petrol and ran a rubber hose from the exhaust into the car, switched the engine on and died. He left me a suicide note and it was dreadful. You'll hear Pharaoh's deep voice and percussion on Boom Boom. Rest in peace. I know what happens to your heart. What? I know what happens when I walk in the room. Oh yeah. I hear your heartbeat every minute. Sure. I know the passion lot within it. Okay. When you go from stop to start I know just how to keep you steady I know just how to keep you steady Your heart goes boom boom venues to play in London with Wildfire, Mistress and the Lulu Boys were probably Dingwalls and the Music Machine, although any London venue back then was a plus. I have to add that for the majority of London gigs we were out of pocket regarding money as it cost more in petrol to get there than any fee we received, being a 500 mile round trip from Blackpool to London and back. Often there was no fee at all, only a percentage of the door takings, and sometimes we gigged for free beer. But we played London venues for somewhere to play, and ultimately got some decent support slots, including Casey and the Sunshine Band and the Jam, amongst others. After Wildfire, Mistress and the Lulu Boys, in that order, I formed the revolutionary Lululus, who specialised in being the first to do something. I'd already started to mess with the drum machine and keyboards in the Lulu Boys, and by this time had a Sinclair Spectrum computer for graphics and games, 
at home. So I bought myself an Atari and Steinberg Pro 24 software, a Roland 303 bass machine, a Roland 606 drum machine, a Profit One keyboard and a Tascam Port Studio 244. They were all midded up and I was always carrying manuals everywhere to learn how to program everything. But I knew I didn't want to be a serious young man with keyboards band. And when I'd previously done live gigs, the dressing rooms provided, or not, were hovels, non-existent or disgusting. So I decided to play in people's living rooms, figuring they had to be more tasteful. They often weren't, I hasten to add, but in other words, I wanted to take something to people as opposed to people going to a venue to see a band. By recording everything onto the Porter Studio, hardly any equipment was needed. So in an effort to entertain, I figured there was room for other things, which incorporated computer graphics, dance and robots, doing the vocals live and using a live guitarist. The live vocals and guitar were plugged into the Porter Studio as well, and the computer graphics came by the use of the TV already in people's homes, so no vans were needed to carry vast amounts of equipment. Hardly rock and roll as we know it. The robots were the most difficult to find, so I advertised in the music press, and a very creative guy called Gray replied, Gray built radio-controlled models and ended up building and operating a dancing rubber plant, a briefcase which popped open with a moving camera, and a drinks trolley which carried drinks, besides other robots. As I was interested in technology, I wanted to assault the senses with ultra-fast-moving graphics, and these were programmed up to be quick and colourful. They were called blipverts, and they were catalogued by the British Film Institute. I happened to be in a club one night when I spotted a guy dancing to You Spin Me Right Round by Pete Burns, and I just approached him to dance for the band. The guitarist I approached for the Lulus had played in the Lulu Boys, and he added guitar lines above and beyond any pre-recorded keyboard lines. A geeky-looking guy, a drummer in another life, was brought in to supplement Grey and his robots, and they donned white lab coats and became the techno team. We all had nicknames. I was known as Yo-Yo, whilst other members were Dr. J, Nylon and Manx, and I'm not about to tell you how we got those nicknames. Well before the Lulus played any living room gigs, I embarked upon a campaign which was mysterious and to a certain degree impenetrable. Each week in the free ads in the music press would appear intriguing snippets about the Lulus. No one would fully understand what was going on and the aim was to intrigue so people thought, what the hell is this? And it worked and captured people's imagination. The very first living room we played was mine and I invited the music press only and they turned up. It was more nerve-wracking to play to a handful of people than at any venue as people were so up close and personal. But it paid off and the press gave us good reviews. I then persuaded friends and enemies to let us play in their living rooms and word spread. Radio interviews followed and soon people were calling up for the Lulus to play in their living rooms. And play we did and it all got out of hand as hundreds of people started to try and attend and the police were often called to keep the peace. Some celebrities came to the gigs and so after the front room tour we did the celebrity front room tour and you'd be surprised just how many celebs were up for it. After the gigs we gave everyone pieces of paper to write their comments on and used these as flyers. We also played in the workplace and this became known as the commuter computer tour. Record company, TV, radio and press interest snowballed and Lulu's music appeared on fanzine tape compilations 
everywhere in the UK and abroad. Solar Lulu started out as a five-piece, but two members left and we became a three-piece, with only myself, Gray and Dr J remaining. New Order, who were based in Manchester, heard about us and invited us to play the Royal Albert Hall with them, and they even dressed the stage to look like a front room sofa, lamp, carpet, everything, and they sat on the sofa during our set, as you would at home. The Lulus weren't a band by the normal definition. Our vinyl records contained computer graphics you could load up so as you could listen and watch simultaneously. The Royal Albert Hall was a turning point for me. I didn't intend for the Lulus to be a normal gigging band, and playing at the Royal Albert Hall with New Order meant we had to turn into one, probably with me just being another female lead singer. My interest in songwriting and production was ever-expanding, and you'll hear a song by the Lulus called Africa, which started life being written by two other people and was called Wada Dolo Wada, which was preposterous. And I changed it beyond all recognition and it became Africa, which was released by several record companies and still gets played to this day. Again, a change of songwriting style for me. To computerized music. I'm so glad there's been a revival of vinyl because vinyl gives you a much warmer sound than today's MP3s or WAVs. It allows the cover artwork to be looked over time and again, even collected in its own right. I know kids who don't own a record player, but their bedroom walls are plastered with vinyl cover art. Vinyl also gives you something physical to hold in these days when everything is just out there in the cosmos. It also contains much more information, both on the label and the sleeve, front, inner and back, as opposed to today's products, which just get downloaded and put into shuffle mode. The Lulu's back catalogue was released on vinyl in 2014 by a German-based record company. And before the pressing, I remembered a tradition of inscribing a secret message into the outro grooves. And this was done. Check it out. Initially, it was the guys at Pressing Plants who did this, and Porky Pig was infamous in its time for scratching a Porky Pig prime cut into the outro grooves. Google it. Plus, if you get presented with a gold disc for record sales, it's still represented by an actual disc shape, e.g. vinyl. Tell me, how do you manifest a gold MP3 or WAV? So, although I'm into computers, as opposed to pure computerized music, and I do try not to digitize anything to within an inch of its life, it's important to value the evolution of technology and music. 
I find it ironic that sometimes, after cleaning a track up digitally, I've been called upon to then add some authentic crackles to the same track to make it sound like vinyl. Vinyl's cool. How was time code born? And explain what time code is all about. Time code was born quite by accident. There was no game plan. I'd already been to visit a university in Scotland who were exploring machine voices, and the sound of them was unique, like nothing I'd heard before, and I knew I could do something with them. It was very ahead of its time. I had an afternoon free, having finished a recording session early, and within four hours had a dance track completed, featuring a machine voice. Very little thought went into the song, it was more of an experiment. The machine didn't sing exactly in the track, more sort of spoke, talked, droned on a bit. I was also starting to explore other musical genres and went to a club and heard the On You sound system run by producer Adrian Sherwood. The sound was massive and really was On You, the bass end shifting great columns of air and punching you in the stomach. So bearing this in mind, the first timecode machine voice song was a lot heavier than my previous pop songs, deliberately so, but still danceable. Shortly afterwards, about a month later, I was approached by a Manchester-based record label and asked to contribute a track for a compilation. So the song was released by Timecode, with a K, in various formats, and the record company decided to rename the song in the year 2525, presumably after the Zagran Evans hit record of the same name, although this phrase initially belonged to a script I'd been developing. I recall asking the record company to put the machine voice track as the first track on the compilation, which was called Freak Beats, because it was so different, freaky, definitely. But they didn't, and actually put it on the compilation as the last track. They went bust ultimately, which serves them right. The track still holds its own today and gets airplay and has been remixed by DJs worldwide. It did well at the time, in the dance clubs, and so Timecode kind of found me. It was a stumble into project. I realised I could then start building on my one and only machine voice monologue and so decided to make it sing, so exploring my own fascination really. It was very pioneering. Further adventures followed and I discovered the robot voices could already sing and had a limited repertoire of sorts. And by of sorts, I mean all the songs were a cappella and the voices were exposed and often sounded silly. I was ridiculed a lot at this time, as they sounded odd and weird, but I had the vision to see and hear they would come into their own. Today, machine voices are everywhere and Professor Stephen Hawking is known instantly by his. I then did some songs using a singing male machine voice and a singing female machine voice and the music behind them gave them much more power. They rocked. I was given contacts at other universities worldwide. Doctors, professors, lecturers, students and more and came across some very advanced technology, including experiments into singing choirs and putting emotion into the robotic voices. They could be angry, sad, happy, funny, etc. And some were so convincing, I wouldn't have known it was a machine voice at all. Part of that was very scary. The singing choirs were remarkable and beautiful and I heard a brilliant example of one accompanying a piano player in real time. If you truly want to know what's out there, check out what the universities are doing and you'll be stunned. It's your future. So Time Code is all about going out on a limb, finding out, asking questions, being first, paving the way, being an individual. 
Time code is about setting trends, not following them. Putting one brave foot in front of the other, even when the ground disappears. There are no human beings at Time Code's recording sessions except me, an engineer, and sometimes a programmer. Everything is done via the manipulation of data, all wrapped up in musical layers and different styles of music. In the year 2525. some of the things you are most proud of? Very briefly, some of the things I'm most proud of include the Lulus getting written into the script of The Archers. Singularly, the most established and recognised radio soap opera series ever. It caused total disbelief amongst the established record companies. Getting a handwritten letter from the then president of the USA, Bill Clinton, was cool. I got an eyeglass magnifier out on this to check. He probably replied to me because I told him I was going to say that he played sax on my track Voodoo, but he didn't inhale. So a sense of humour shone through. The homemade video of Fire featuring Griddlebeer, a monster conjured up from the dark recesses of my twisted imagination, is something I'm proud of because the kit it was done on would be considered obsolete and not fit for purpose by today's CGI standards. It was done on a computer which was 15 years old using Windows XP with no internet connection and took effort, not money, a labour of love. Probably more than anything else, mere survival is something I'm proud of through acting and thinking outside of the box. I'm a mere slip of a woman, five foot nothing, and have survived the arrows and blows of the music business. I don't look like I can produce a massive sound, so I'm proud of the fact that appearances can be deceptive. Award ceremonies and awards do nothing for me. It's the music business patting itself on the back. Without fans, it all means nothing. What does music mean to you? Music means life, and life means music. Every single one of us can muster songs which became, or even will become, the soundtrack to our lives. Music can transport you to another time and conjure up the whole spectrum of emotions, right through love, sadness, pain, hope, anger, fun, reflecting every aspect of the human condition. That's the all-encompassing side of music. I do sometimes, however, despair of what music's become in terms of lack of individuality and identity. There's a kind of checkbox tick list prevalent now, and it goes like this. To be in a band, you must grow a beard, have at least a sleeve full of tattoos, wear your hair in a top knot. If you're a guitarist, play upstrokes. A bass player, lollop around with lolloping strides. Wear skinny leg jeans. If you're a rap artist, get the obligatory hand movements off to a tee. Wear bling. The baseball cap back to front. Visit the big boys bumper book of rhyming slang. If you're a female artist, get yourself a heaving alabaster bosom, or these days a heaving fake tan bosom, and a huge ass. Then bring out your own perfume range. Later on, have plastic surgery so you look as if you've been in a wind tunnel and use the words like, in it, whatever, excessively. You get my drift, blah, blah. In other words, everybody copies or rips off everybody else. The word uniformity springs to mind. 
God damn it, the media now even suggests what to wear, what to eat, what to watch, and if you like such and such a band, you may like. I've always believed, and still do, that people find true talent themselves, and this spreads by word of mouth, creating its own buzz. And these are the fans who will stay loyal because what they found is interesting and original. No social media stats, which are just a numbers game, will replace discovering something new which will last and isn't a passing fad with a limited shelf life. Longevity earns respect, and respect has to be earned. It is not automatically attributable. Take a look and a listen to the bands with staying power. They've all gone their own way, both musically and in a fashion sense. So music also means saying to the world, go to hell. This is who I am, and this is what I do. Here endeth the lesson, and it shall come to pass. Testify. Talk about your work with singing machines. Why is this of interest to you? My work with machines has evolved and never stands still. The reason I became interested in singing machines, which are just black boxes and intrinsically uninteresting to look at, albeit the early ones were the size of washing machines, was because they were built on the model of a human throat. Their voices could be male female, adult and child, or any combination, and no human voice could do this. The machine voices were not human speech, which had been stored or digitised or sampled, but were not human in origin at all. It was a simple fact they weren't human in origin, which fed my interest in all things futuristic and artificial. I understand at present new kit is being built and the people involved are basing this on the model of the inside of a human being's mouth and I have been asked if I fancy going headfirst into an MRI scanner again to get images of the inside of my mouth. I've said no to this, are you kidding? Because I'm now, and have been for a while, messing around with human voice blends, HVBs. Human voice blends involves getting actual human voices from many sources and cutting them up and blending them back together. Making men sound like women and vice versa, although sometimes not, and dropping in and utilising machine voices. It's painstaking, as often one word is what I'm looking for, to sit comfortably with others. It doesn't always work, but it mostly does. I find it bizarre to actually construct a lead vocal. Maybe this will replace lead singers as we know and love them. Talk about some of the projects you have contributed to, or worked on, including your TV projects. Some of the projects I've worked on or contributed to. Hmm, my first production job was back in the late 80s for Jane County. Jane was then Wayne County with his punk band, The Electric Chairs, based in the USA. Check out their anthem. That's the one I totally reworked. Jane had undergone a sex change. And yes, I asked all the questions you've always wanted to ask about having a sex change. I then worked with other transgender artists. And during a session with one who shall remain nameless, the mixing desk developed a very loud hum. I said to the engineer, what the hell is that noise? And he replied, oh, that's easy, Denny. It's pervert, hum. Not a politically correct answer, I know, but we cracked up at the time, and thank God the talkback mic wasn't on. Having worked with the producer of The Archers, then William Smethurst, I did a 10-minute dance track for his new TV series, Set in Space, called Jupiter Moon. He sent me a script, which I did read, and then I put it away in a drawer and just did whatever I felt like. 
The dance track was used and a further 30 plus songs were used within the series which ran at a colossal 150 episodes and was screened worldwide. We all fell out ultimately as I didn't sign the publishing over to the company involved an oversight on their part but not on mine. I also did the pilot for a TV music show called The Word, which was taken up and put into production and ran for years. During a filming break, I had lunch at a restaurant and billed the TV company for it. They did pay up, but I received a very personal note from them, which included, next time, eat in the canteen along with everybody else. I did a TV interview with a foreign TV company, KTV, during which a bunch of animal puppets interviewed me. There was a cat and several bewildered-looking ducks or chickens, possibly. That was great fun, and the puppets were sceptical, saying, women producers, whatever next. By this time, I was obsessed with voice simulations, vox sims for short, machines which could sound realistically human, and I had encountered Marquis Smith of The Fall. He was a very interesting character and a perfect gentleman, but we had different agendas. I was around him for a while and approached him to do a voice simulation of his voice, most notably because he wasn't a proper singer, but had an instantly recognisable voice. The song Cheap Space Chant was very successful in that it sounded like him. I then decided to try and do a voice simulation of Rod Stewart, who was a proper singer. Before I'd done anything, his publishers leapt on me, threatening court action. I went ahead anyway, and this was troublesome from day one. Ultimately, the robot voice didn't sound like Rod Stewart, more of a strangulated version, although it did sound human, and I took the song down five different musical avenues and did a good job, as all five songs were in essence rewrites, and I wasn't sued. I don't consider myself an author, not really, but there are two books on my website available to download. Book one is fun and light-hearted, and this disguised the reality of what was going on with voice simulations. Book two is anything but fun and is dark, sinister even, but doesn't disguise anything. Read it for yourselves. What are your current projects? My current projects include constructing another human voice blend, but going down a musical avenue I haven't been down before, and I've explored pop, dance, rock, soul, classical and more, so it isn't any of those genres.
it's not drum and bass, incidentally, as that particular genre of music, in my opinion, doesn't constitute a proper song, in that you can just let the machines run whilst you saunter off for a drink. Going down different musical avenues is how I learn, as each musical genre requires a different approach. And I never signed up to one specific musical genre, so I'm not selling out because I never sold in. In fact, whenever I have to upload any of my music, I always tick other, as I hate all those little separate classifications of music categories as they pigeonhole you. How convenient for someone. I'm also working on a posting which will accompany the song and long since abandoned showing myself as this beautiful, airbrushed, glitzy Hollywood person, as real life isn't like that. I don't know about you, but there's times when I'm damn glad there's no one around because you look like a war zone, warts and all, huh? And that's all I'm prepared to tell you at present. Wait and see. What is next for Time Code? What's next for time code? Besides the usual credibility, notoriety, world domination and becoming the self-elected spokeswoman for a generation, not a role model I have to say, as I haven't led that virtuous a life. Who knows? Everything is in the lap of the gods and Lady Luck. Where can listeners go to learn more about time code? To learn more about Timecode, with a K, listeners can go to my website, timecode.co.uk, and go to YouTube and search for Denny Timecode. Postings on YouTube cover a huge variety of topics, from information on my early bands, to a cappella versions of prototype singing machines, some of which are embarrassing, to singing machines proper, to voice simulations, right through to human voice blends. My entire life history is on YouTube, it would seem. You can, of course, preview my songs and purchase via iTunes. What are your favorite bands? I don't tend to have favorite bands, as with each decade, musical trends come and go, and I change my favorites accordingly. Fickle, possibly, or keeping in touch with the changes. I'm drawn more to certain songs, and the production in particular, as a good song will outlive the band or artist. Favourite songs, and thus the producers, include Mike Klink for his work on Paradise City by Guns N' Roses. The outro is utterly magnificent. I smile every time I hear it. Bruce Fairbairn for his work on Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. The part where that song soars, so simple but so clever. Guy Chambers for his work on Let Me Entertain You by Robbie Williams. Just when you think nothing else can happen towards the end of that song, more instruments come in again and again. Phil Spector for his wall of sound. Absolutely fantastic. Bob Rock, for all his efforts with Metallica, including the coaching aspects of his involvement. Trevor Horn, who is God, incidentally, because of the sheer diversity and scope of the music he's produced. Sir George Martin, not only because of his work with the Beatles, but because he's so serene and dispels the myth that you have to be a dictator of a producer leading a rock and roll lifestyle to produce stunning results. Sir George Martin is the epitome of a facilitator. The term producer has been hijacked these days and applies to everyone who merely presses record. A producer should make a song shine with a favourite bit which is memorable to everybody. And if this isn't the case, then don't use a producer nor call yourself one. In a studio setting, producers usually fall into two schools. Those who place the emphasis on feel and vibe, like Rick Rubin, 
or those who place the emphasis on perfection, like Mutt Lang. It's any band's job to deliver up a great live set consistently. They are there to entertain in an exciting way. I'm always drawn to a band's video which reflects a sense of humour. Examples being All Time Low and the Nothing Personal Quips, Tenacious D and Tribute, The Foo Fighters and Learn to Fly. The list is endless. What else do we need to know about Time Code? Name a hobby or something else of interest no one would know about. What else do you need to know about Timecode? Well, something that may be of interest that no one knows about is My grandfather on my mother's side was born with a veil or hood over his face. This is spelt C-A-U-L and pronounced call. It's a thin, filmy membrane, the remnants of the amniotic sac that covers the newborn immediately after birth. It looks like a shimmery coating of the head and face. It's harmless and easily removed. So my grandfather was known as a call bearer. In medieval times, the appearance of a call was seen as a sign of good luck. It was considered an omen and linked with the psychically gifted. Over the course of European history, a call was highly prized and regarded as a valuable talisman. Alexander the Great was allegedly born with one. When my grandfather visited me in hospital when I was a mere two days old, he saw behind my right shoulder an ethereal woman holding a lion on a chain and swore this was my protection and special destiny through life. I have a tattoo on my right shoulder of a black cat thanks to this family story. Finally, I have to say thank you for this interview and I have to go now on account of what I'm not wearing. Goodbye USA until we meet again. I'm stuck into darkness I'm stuck into fire I'm stuck into fantasy I'm stuck into liar I'm stuck into darkness I'm stuck in desire I'm stuck into I'm stuck into fire
thanks again to Denny for reaching out to Music Live Radio. Great to have you on the program, and thanks for putting together that unique interview. I am your host, Dan Sauter, for Music Live Radio. We will catch you next time. Cool.